Together podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. Okay, so, this is an episode... Um, like a previous one that I did that is a compilation of clips from previous episodes. Um, Although, unlike the last one that I did, this isn't just a best of. This is one that's all centered around one concept, and that concept is efficacy. And efficacy is like this weird thing. It's like a red thread that seems to be running through my uh, Minotaur's labyrinth of conversations with thinkers, makers, and doers here on the Working Together podcast. And so I thought, you know, I should uh, I should tie some of this together for folks and, and put it out there into the world. So in this episode, we're going to explore the concept of efficacy in personal, political, and technical modes in that order. But before we kind of launch into that, I want to just have a bit of a soapbox moment here about efficacy, okay? So, I think efficacy is like uh, a motif behind all good social innovations, um, community engagement efforts, co-design efforts, barn raisers, talcoots, work parties, you name it. And it's also behind um, more personal endeavors too, like tinkering in your basement, uh, growing a you know a bunch of food, um, or starting a small business. Um, so it's it's kind of this thing, right? Uh, that's behind a lot of that goodness um, and efficacy. It's not afraid of of messy problems either. It's not afraid of conflict or catastrophe even um, because efficacy seems to have a lot of faith in rolling up the sleeves, in making fast friends, in messing around and in working together. Right? Um, And on your own, regaining a sense of personal efficacy can be a really fun challenge. You know, you learn how to tinker with things and, and do all this stuff in your basement or your yard or whatever. Um, giving a group of folks or a community a sense of efficacy, on the other hand, is a damn hard thing to design for. Um, it requires careful preparation. It requires knowing a thing or two about your ingredients and how they will interact. It requires observation during uh, the encounter between everybody. Um, you know, to help facilitate constructive work and to learn how to design better the next time. So in short, you know, it, uh, it requires recipes and a good chef. So that's kind of what this episode is. It's a series of recipes for efficacy. On the one hand, kind of the, the, they're not, I don't want to devalue them by saying that they're easier, but they're just different. There's the recipes for personal efficacy which um, you can kind of do on your own a lot easier Um, and they're a lot easier to incorporate into your life too because it's just about you and your thing you and your maker space or you and your garden or you and your uh, business idea that you're trying to get off the ground Um, in a nutshell I mean there's less at stake right when you are trying out a new dish by yourself and that's what makes it so amazing and so i uh i talk all about personal efficacy um either explicitly or implicitly with uh with mark fraunfelder and kevin kelly in previous episodes so i threw in some clips from those guys um and uh they'll really i think inspire you to to just begin experimenting with things and begin 
trying stuff out. And so these other things, though, these, these um, you know, efforts to create political and technical efficacy between groups of people, <clears throat> they require a lot of work designing and facilitating. In short, a lot of meal prep and planning and at least one good chef, if not an entire kitchen full of good chefs. So these uh, practitioners, they're always cooking up new ways to combine ingredients. Um, they're always reflecting on what could be done better the next time and making edits to the recipe until it works. Um, and my interviews with Patrick Condon, Peter McLeod, and Guy Siez are an exploration of some working recipes that they've been using to help groups of people achieve political and technical efficacy. So with that in mind, let us begin with our first clip, short clip, the shortest clip of them all, with Mark Fraunfelder um, as we talk about the maker movement and how to get involved in it. Because uh, we're running out of time here. Uh, so for anyone on the fence about jumping into making uh, and kind of the DIY side of things that you are so passionate about, what would you tell them to tip them over the fence? You know, I would say to get involved, to, to not just make for the sake of, of making, even though there are rewards for that, make something that's going to make a difference in your life. And for, I think, a lot of people, an easy way to get into it is like with food and making things that you normally would buy is like can be really rewarding and help boost your confidence. So things like making your own yogurt and sauerkraut, like your own fermented foods, kombucha, if you're a kombucha drinker, you can save a fortune making your own sauerkraut and kombucha compared to buying it in a store. And it's pretty easy to do. And it's really mm -hmm. fun to kind of observe and be part of that fermentation process. Uh, and then if you want to push it a little farther, getting into gardening, raising your own chickens, uh, keeping bees, all those things don't require, really don't require a lot of work, but then all of a sudden you're like becoming a producer of, of food. Like you're, you're making something that keeps you and your family and neighbors alive that's like a great way. And then once you start doing that, you'll just say, well, what else can I do? You know, what, what other things can I do to change? It's like you, you develop this, this in, in growing self, sense of self-efficacy and you just will want to raise the bar and keep on challenging yourself. Great. Great advice. I like it. Yeah, oh, yeah. And the other advice is to um, not look at mistakes as a bad thing. You should always try to do your best, but you should also welcome mistakes as learning experiences and also great stories to tell your friends when you like screw up something really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I agree. It, it, it's always a better story. If you, uh, you know, a few months or years after the fact, Hey, <laughs> yeah, in the exactly. moment, it's like, what the hell did I do wrong? This is terrible. Oh man. Exactly. We've all been there. All right, next up, I've got Kevin Kelly um, and me talking about why now is the best time to start up some sort of new, interesting, weird business idea that you want to start up. Why now is the time, okay? Uh, and we talk about a whole bunch of other stuff related with that idea. I hope you enjoy it. I'm right now much more interested in the, um, the new possibilities, the new opportunities that the technology gives us um, for collaboration, for working together at this new scale. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and, and it has something to do with globalization in the sense that, um, the people participating are likely as likely to live in Uzbekistan, Ukraine, or uh, Jakarta as they are in Toronto. And so, um, uh, you know, there's all kinds of consequences from that. I mean, my whole 
thousand true fan theory is somewhat based on the fact that, you know, when you have a, a, a several billion people connected mm-hmm. together, um, that gives the, the possibility of, you know, of any one in a million interests. So like an interest that would only appeal to a one in a million people still has enough. still you still have 10,000, you still have a thousand fans. You still have a thousand people interested, which is enough to support mm-hmm. somebody in, in that the most esoteric, uh, niche interest will still have enough people to support it. And, and that's sort of like, that's like the first time that's true. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I have to say I've read that piece by yours many times. Um, and also the Tim Ferriss revisited version too. Um, and maybe, maybe this is, this is a good point to kind of shift gears a little bit too, to this other element to the story that, that, you know, that, that forms that working together and that collaboration and that almost, uh, renewed optimism and joy, I guess, about the present moment. And uh, I really like this line. I think it's in one of your first chapters of the new book where you talk about now being the best time to start, like kind of looking back from 2050. if you're looking at today, the people in 2050 would be thinking, man, what would it, what would it have been like, (laughs) you know, to be some, you know, some new entrepreneur with an Arduino in their garden, trying to figure out how to like use the sensors to design some, you know, like that, I think, um, is very, uh, is very positive for us right now. And, and the, you know, the thousand true fans theory and the whole long tail business, but a lot of people don't really recognize that. So what do you say to people who, you know, still feel like the only answer is to just go get a job? Well, um, I'm a big believer in slack and wasting time. I think that's one of the advantages of youth is that youth can spend 50 hours on a game or they can spend a lot of time doing things without necessarily any productive goal in mind. And Mm -hmm. out of that slack comes, um, an insight, uh, appreciation and awareness a mastery and so um that's w- one thing that i think um we do get from progress is you know we we, we do have we we do have a possibility of leisure to to, to waste time that way um i i also think that um uh in general, uh, kids, I think, are um, and they're, they're not wasting enough time. I think sometimes hmm. uh, they're overscheduled, and uh, um, and in this country, there's such a, a pressure to and housing so expensive, such a pressure to. Uh, it's really hard to kind of like. Um, What's the word you want? Uh, you know, couch surf or mm-hmm. sponge off of off of uh, cheap rents, and so um, people are often forced to. And that in developing countries, they have cheap rents, but they're often don't have any resources, and they have to go to work right away. So I, I'm hoping that part of what um, the robotics and AI will bring is is again um, that that promised leisure of, of, uh, that allows us to, to waste time and be inefficient, which is, I think the prime or prime, uh, ability, um, and as robots do more of the work, what we're going to be better at is wasting time. Yeah. It's, it's so true because, you know, when you're, when you have slack is when you start to tinker. Um, yeah, I mean, unless you're totally enveloped in the screen and you haven't created that criteria for yourself to limit, you know, how, how much of that you get, that's the time when you start to tinker and go, Oh, you know, maybe I'll try this out. Maybe, maybe I will start a blog or maybe I will try my hand at podcasting. And that's, 
yeah, I agree. It's so important. And I think, you know, there's another, there, like, I, I almost want to call it, I don't want to call it the dark side, but <laughs> sometimes I feel like that's what it is. But it's this, um, it's this call to hustle, you know, that you got to just, and it's, it's in folks like Gary Vaynerchuk and all those kind of folks, right, who just say, get out the door, have a 16-hour day where you're just doing nothing but hustle. And I think that, for a lot of people, is resonating because of, uh, you know, this situation where you see high rents and you see these these barriers, I guess, right? I think there are phases. I, I, you know, I, I think... Um... I, th- I think there are phases and there should be phases. And I think there are probably moments when you want to do 16 hours a day hustling mm-hmm. and you're not, you're, you're not eating. You're just, you're just completely consumed by, uh, you know, doing this thing. And I think it's appropriate. And then I think, you know, after you do that for eight months or nine months or whatever it is, I mean, you take a, you take a break and you do absolutely nothing and you, you know, you doodle, in your studio, um, or you master Call of Duty three, whatever it is, and I, I, I think that to me is um, seems to me to be the, uh, the highly evolved lifestyle where you are are in phases. Um, I think if you are assisting our hustling for ten years or more, that you know that's just a, that's just a recipe for disaster. And I think if you're just playing Call of Duty for ten years or more, that's also so. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, I, I I think I, I think I uh, think this idea of uh, of phases or seasons uh, makes more sense where you kind of go deep in these modes, and um, at least that fits my personality a lot better. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of like a more more bumpy and kind of, you know, uh, it's a bumpy geography of life rather than just this consistent, smooth, you know, nine to five, or if you're hustling like crazy, nine to nine to ten or whatever it might be. You know, it's it's a you, little. You mentioned this. Sorry. I think the metaphor I would say not so much bumpy is more like a landscape where mm. you are ascending a mountain. And then you kind of come to descent where you kind of open up into a big valley. And so uh, then you may go into kind of the woods or then you kind of you're floating down the river. So it's sort of like a landscape view where you then you cross the valley and you have to ascend the mountains again. Hmm. And um, uh, so, so for a period of time, you're just climbing. And then there's a period of time where you're kind of meandering. There's a period of time when you are, you know, exploring, and a period of time when you are, uh, you know, thrashing through the mud. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like a landscape view of uh, of life. And you know, it, it, the funny thing about how you how you describe that it's that's a parallel with your story, I think, right? And the journeys that you've had through these different landscapes. Um, that made such yeah, an impact. And, and it's it. also, right, there's also kind of a, what I call kind of a project uh, framework for, I think in terms of projects, and each project may have its own rhythm and quality. So rather than a career, it's just kind of, you know, the career entailed, you kind of show up and do the same thing for 35 years and then you're, you're dismissed. Um, the project oriented is more like, you know, you have these seasons or these patches or these terrains that you hmm. are in for a while and then you are and then you shift, you you break through and you arrive at a different terrain, different project and you spend some time and there may be shifting there may be in, in intermediate periods where you aren't doing much or you're you're resting or whatever. Um, I think that's uh, another framework for kind of understanding a, a life where you, um, you know, you, again, it's like phases or periods or projects. 
of my friend Stuart Brand, he's he has divided his life into projects, and he says any project that's he sort of is, is worth doing is usually about a five-year duration from the moment he thinks of it to the moment he lets it go, hmm. and um, roughly, and that that you know, and that um, so he was kind of pacing himself, like how many five-year projects do I have left in hmm. my life, and um, Choosing just the um, right ones. Yeah, right. You have to you have to really select and mm-hmm. be careful about those because you have a limited number of, of projects that you get to throw your life into. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, thinking in those those kind of terms, you know, it's like you'll be at this thing for maybe five you know, approximately five years and so you want it to be a great great run. Um and it might have its own rhythm. That that, that a particular project will have its own rhythm, and um, then you know there'll be a you'll have a break, and hopefully you'll have a shift, a time in between, a gap mm-hmm. before you start the next one. Yeah, and you know I think that you know just to just to see the other side of it, right? Like there, I feel like that lifestyle is possible now, more than it more than it ever has been. Right? We we are not salaried masses or any of that kind of early 20th century type stuff. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. but what do you say to those people who are kind of still stuck in that mode, uh, who still, you know, find themselves, um, you know, with this eye towards retirement and their organization that they're in and they've, they've got, instead of a five year project ahead of them, it's more like a 35 year thing. Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's tough to place myself in other people's because I've had a very privileged, uh, you know, I was born white, male, American in the 50s. It's like, uh, you know, hard to hard to completely put myself in someone else's shoes but 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 I do think that if you have any if, if you have two of those four things I just mentioned then you probably have more choices than you think you do mm-hmm. um and I uh I think generally people have a lot more options than, than they're even aware of I, I did this book called Cool Tools which was this, what I call a catalog of possibilities it was um, you know, this huge oversized book which reviewed tools in the broadest sense. And the idea was called a subtitle, A Catalog of Possibilities, because each of these tools was uh, a handle to possibilities to, of doing things yourself or a small group. Mm-hmm. And we, 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 there are just so many more possibilities that we have um, available to us uh, than we know. And um, people often, I think, get stuck on, like, you know, should I do A or B, when the reality is, is there's, you know, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, K, other possibilities that they're either unaware of or ignoring. And um, uh, that, that that's... I think that's true no matter really what your um, constraints are, mm-hmm. what your situation is, is you probably have more choices than you think you do. And, and I think I... part of what educa- education is about, part of what um, being connected in reading and and learning is about is, is, is uh, about becoming aware of at least mm-hmm. how to find those other choices or how to see them. Mm-hmm. And um, the more you're aware of them, I think the more successful you'll be because um, in- those increased options can also be a way around what seems to be a stumbling block. Yeah, I mean, you, you uh, I think you're hitting the nail on the head there. And, and to tie it back to something you said earlier about the... Um, the thousand true fans notion, right? That, that we actually are in the long tail right now. Um, it's a very unique place to be 
because the long tail is super fat. <laughs> you know, what the internet has done is it made it's made that that tail super fat. So instead of you know being limited by the uh, the number of people in your town who might be into the very particular thing that you're into, mm-hmm. you now have mm-hmm. the internet of the city or the the city internet, right? Like the internet. I, I like yeah. to tell my friends this that you know, part of the whole reason why I started podcasting and started working together and blogging and all of this just a couple of years ago is because I had a bit of an an eye-opening experience where I realized the internet is the world's biggest city right now. And you can kind of set up shop wherever you want. Um, and you will find, like, people will begin kind of frequenting your shop or your 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 blog or whatever it is that you want to have there because... It, you know, it's a bajillion times bigger than New York ever was, right? And in the past, it would have been, you know, somebody really wanting to follow their passion would have had to quit their job and then kind of take a big risk moving to the big smoke, right? So that they could set up their little hobby shop that was about one particular thing that they were passionate about, right? And then they would take the risk and plunge into New York City and have their their little storefront and be successful because there was at least a thousand people in that community who would support it. And now that it, you can do that from your basement, you know? Um, so the, the level yep. of risk is so much lower, but I think a lot of people don't, don't see that yet. And I, and that's kind of the next yeah, shift. And, that and, I... and, right. And, you know, to, to, to be perfectly honest, there's um, a lot of work involved in finding connecting with those thousand people they're mm-hmm. not going to just show up yes exactly at your door so so um the the risk is that um, this is not an automatic thing it takes some time you may not succeed um and for uh many people who feel stuck that they feel like an indulgence being able to do that but um uh the more people that do succeed i think that gives inspiration and confidence to others to to try and also we also need more and better tools to you know identify and connect with those thousand true fans that we're not done yet there's, there's a lot of work switching gears now going into this notion of political efficacy and technical efficacy um, and how to build uh, that that vibe or that sense amongst a group of people. Um, and so first off, we're going to hear from Patrick Condon, who's run a fair number of design charades in his day. And, uh, and you'll learn all about what that is in this clip here. And obviously, if you want to learn more, just like all these clips, you can listen to the previous episodes that I'll link to in the show notes that have the full conversations. The stages of a charrette are three. There's three basic stages. The first is talk, the second is doodle, and the third is draw. So for the talk stage, you come in, and as you point out, it's where people want the facts, people want to talk, people want to express their positions, people want to get stuff on the table, and that's all pretty verbal. Mm-hmm. You know, we support our charrettes with a lot of uh, data and information that we distill from the policy base. Uh, so they have a they have a they have a brief. They don't come in cold. Mm-hmm. They have a brief about what the constraints are and what the opportunities are, which is a very elaborate process on our part. It takes months to distill all that stuff down into a brief. So we have a lot of facts and and, and issues on the table, as well as some principles that have also been vetted through a public process. But so that but they, but at any rate, that's the first part. It's the talk part. Mm-hmm. And as designers, um, I'm trained as a designer, and in my shreds, I also have a group of other facilitators at the table who are also good designers and who can both talk and draw at the same time, which is a pretty rare skill, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Left brain, right brain, or something like this, yeah, right? Yeah, you have to do both. <laughs> same time. Yeah, it's really, it's like, yeah, rubbing your stomach and 
Uh, you, you should put that. You should put that on the you know the the job postings, right? Must be able yeah. to rub tummy and pat head. Tummy and head and pat head at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be in those. Yeah. I want to see that interview panel. That that would be. <laughs> yeah, let's see you do that. Question one. But the uh, but the second stage is uh, so it's talk is the first stage. Doodle is the second stage. So that's just that's when you get mm. sort of past this thing where you know you get people are no longer stakeholders or team members, and somewhere simultaneously with that, you're able to say to people around the table things like. The facilitator can say, "Oh, do you mean like this?" And uh, and you have something physical to draw with, and you have a map or mm-hmm. something that you're drawing on, and that's real that represents the real place. This is assuming a physical design charrette, which all mine are. And uh, on that map, with a piece of trace paper on top of it, you start to say things like, "Do you mean like this?" Mm-hmm. And the facilitator will make a mark, and the person, and then ask the facilitator, "Is that what you mean?" And then the person might say no, and a smart facilitator at that point will say, "Well, you show me," and hand them the hand them the pen or the the marker. Mm-hmm. Say, "Where do you think it ought to be?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when you're. This is the critical point, psychologically super important, because that's the point at which you can make everybody in the room not just a participant but also a designer. Mm-hmm. One of our principles is that everybody designs. So it's very important for facilitators to be able to break the barrier that suggests that only the trained designers can design. Everybody has to design. And if you fail in this uh, mission of making everybody a designer, there's going to be a distance between the stakeholders and the designers at the end of it. So their commitment to it will will only be partial. Hmm. You really have to legitimately inculcating them the feeling through their experience that they are designers. So that's when the pen, that's why it's critical that you hand the pen over mm. to them and say, do you mean here? And then everybody has to scribble on that. And it's really an ugly drawing, and it's the most beautiful drawing in the whole charrette process because it's the mark of that participation. Yes. And, and the, uh, the, uh, the uglier it is, the better. It's the mark of uh, seeing you know, a citizen or a stakeholder um, kind of achieve political efficacy. Right. Or personal efficacy. So, you know, they right. they suddenly have that feeling of... They're in charge. Being in charge, having a sense of worth within the community around the problem that everybody's trying around to solve. Around the problem. And there's a, <clears throat> there's a collaborative and, and group... Uh, process that that came to the solution that everybody's invested in it and you really don't want to see people hang back in a second row at that stage of the shred and the doodle stage the doodle stage is the most critical part of the shred because you really good mm-hmm. facilitator has to make sure the pen is handed over but they also have to make sure there's nobody in the second row second row is is a bit of a metaphor sometimes there literally is somebody who's hanging back or a group of people who are disinclined to put their shoulders forward onto the table. Mm-hmm. So good facilitation means you have to be sensitive to when that's happening and and uh, find a way to pull that person forward towards the table and get them to mark, <clears throat> mark the plan figuratively or actually mm-hmm. uh, as well. Uh, it, it has to happen. You have to get, you have to get 100% group participation and, and respect for each other too. And do you have any, um, any kind of words of advice around that element? Cause when you're working with groups that are diverse, right, you know, they're diverse in terms of their, their stakes that they're, that they hold and their interests. Right. But then they're also yeah. diverse in terms of their, the degree to which they're comfortable, I guess, working in groups, you know, some mm-hmm. people are very extroverted and they can kind of, they can come in and they they're they're fine with that kind of work, right? Whereas other people, they they they're more introverted and they might distance themselves more from the process, even though they have a ton to add. Well, two things to say about that. One is it takes good facilitation. Facilitation is is really crucial. And mm-hmm. what I what I find in charrettes, the hardest thing in charrettes is to get good facilitation. But because I've been doing it for Almost 30 years, I have people in this region and across North America that I can call on. They're very specialized people that are good facilitators that can both. Not only can they both talk and draw at the same time, but they, 
they they're also not assholes. They're you know they're mm-hmm. tremendous. These people are tremendously talented architects and landscape architects. And particularly, if I might if I may be so bold, amongst architects, if you can find a tremendously talented architect who's not arrogant, that that's as rare. <laughs> that's as rare as hen's teeth. You know, that's extremely rare. Mm-hmm. So, it's a very narrow band of individuals who are can, can both talk and draw and are respectful and are not arrogant and who won't run away with the design because, oh, I can just do this. I've done a million of these. Yeah. I've done a million of these things. Right. You know, that's, that's, that's the most typical flaw of uh, design charrettes that I've, that I've observed. And it's, and it's the typical flaw because it's really hard to avoid. To get the right facilitators in the room is really, really, really hard. Well, it's that second moment. point, number one. Yeah, okay. Sorry. You had another so point. I had the yeah. second point. Yeah, second point is, uh, in terms of uh, getting people, so that's the facilitator side. The stakeholder side is another question. Mm-hmm. To get the right people at the table is also a crucial part of the design, of the charrette design process. Um, it's, and this, this part is not well understood by people I might call amateurs in the game. The selection of who's at the table has two parts. One, the the person, you have to have the right people. So in terms of their categories, so the way I described that one is you have to have everybody at the table, a representative of any entity at the table, those entities, all the entities that at some point could say no. Mm-hmm. And if they're not at the table and later on you have to go to that entity, they're going to say no, pretty much assured because mm-hmm. they weren't at the table and this is their opportunity to say no. So you have to think through whether it's a neighborhood design or whatever it is, who in the future would be the one who's out there that could say no to this plan and they have to come in. So that develops the list of necessary stakeholders. Hmm. And then the, that, then the second part of that process is, okay, who amongst that group is a uh, the most powerful person in that stakeholder group who has the respect of the of their community, or uh, is uh, by virtue of their status as a, whatever it is, the deputy fire chief or the chief of police or the head of the environmental protection agency or or uh, the owner of the company that's going to develop the land, you know, as mm-hmm. high up as you can go, so that their opinion won't be thwarted by their boss when they uh, come in later and say, well, boss, this is what we decided at the charrette. And the boss says, well, I wasn't there, so so Mm -hmm. how with that? So you have to have, uh, you have to have people high up on the food chain. That's really hard to do because they're usually people who don't have a week to spare. And unless they feel this is very vital to them, uh, they're not going to do it. So that's a very difficult thing to do, but that's your objective. Mm. And those people have to be people that, there's a consensus who are generally easy to work with or who can be worked with. And that's politically challenging for a shred organizer to be in a position of saying, you know, somebody in the city says, okay, well, here's a guy in engineering and you have to say, well, is he a jerk? No. I mean, that's, you're not Mm -hmm. in a good position as a consultant to be able to say that. So you have to be rather delicate and say, Mm. Okay, that's good. That he, by virtue of position, that sounds good. And does he work? Has he worked extensively with the public? And uh, what has been uh, the results of that? And think questions like that. Mm-hmm. The setting up the table is, in short, very uh, a very important part of the process as well. Yeah. Setting up the game. Yeah, it's. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Ezio Manzini, uh, but he has a he's he's a kind of social innovation um, Italian guy who who his his whole backgrounds in design and uh in his book that i have design when everybody designs he calls uh he calls this process designing coalitions and he says it's kind of one of the most important elements of this of kind of co-design exercises right where you yeah you know you actually spend a lot of time in the in the front end planning stage for this sort of thing that's right getting all the right pieces together and thinking about who needs to be in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So yeah, that's, yeah, we spend. Uh, that's exactly right. And we spend. I, I tell people who want to do these shreds, and I don't do them anymore because they're a young man's game. Quite frankly, they're exhausted. <laughs> but we spend. Uh, you know, we spend nine months or a year on a shred. You only get one week at the table, but mm. the lead up to it can be uh, quite long. Wow. It's like an iceberg. An iceberg only a, only a small part of it shows up hmm. above the surface of the water. There's tons of time putting together the coalition, assembling the database. You know, I've skipped over that part with only one reference, but we spend a lot of time uh, distilling what we call the policy pile down into a few pages. Any any urban area that I work with has a ton of. Uh, of policy constraints, engineering constraints, mm-hmm. legal constraints that uh, influence what happens on the site. You can't ignore that. Mm-hmm. If you just go in with, you know, a blank page charrette, blue sky thing, that's the other recipe for failure for charrettes is to just go in with no prep at all and just mm-hmm. say, oh, what what would we love to do here on this site? And it's all, you know, like, you know, <clears throat> Nothing makes sense at the end of it. It's all very nice and utopia, but, but it's it, not going to get built. It doesn't it's just fit not going to happen. Yeah, because it doesn't fit code. It doesn't fit the economic constraints. It doesn't fit with, uh, you know, things like the uh, the infrastructure plan for the city. A million different things mm-hmm. uh, it has to fit into. So, and yet you don't want to stifle creativity. So the, <clears throat> the 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 sweet spot in that is to boil down all that all those policy and economic and political constraints. Uh, into a into a into a design brief into a digestible set of instructions or of grounding principles or constraints mm-hmm. or design objectives, and that takes a long time, and that's that has to be negotiated at a time, mm. and that's uh, a big part of it. So we do all, most of our work is before the charrette weeks. Uh, you know, the charrette week is the most intense part of it. And then there's a bunch of cleanup and distribution after. Mm. But most of the, most of the real work in terms of staff hours is the upfront. So next now we have Peter McLeod from Mass LBP talking about their recipe um, for creating citizen reference panels and running them. And I've actually, in my uh, in my previous best of episode, this uh, this segment was used therein as well because it's just such a good crystallization of their process. And uh, and I gotta say, I I I after I recorded that interview, I had the opportunity to go and see Mass LBP at work. And I gotta say, like it was just incredible to see this room of people. Um, nobody who knew each other, uh, they all came from the same community. They were all randomly selected to be there. And they had been meeting every Saturday for a few months already, uh, trying to figure out these really complex policy problems. And they were all super excited about it. Um, and, it, you know, you'll understand as you hear what, uh, what Mass LBP is all about and what they do. But it was really uh, a moment for me where I realized all that people need is a sense that they are contributing to the community in in some meaningful way more than just voting so i hope you enjoy this piece it's uh, it's really important solving the problem is is really what mass lbp does in the work that that you guys that you guys have done you've you've done 27 uh citizens reference panels is that correct or at least that's how many I saw on the web page when I was <laughs> looking at it earlier today. Yeah, you know, we're, we're going to crest over 30 this year. Uh, and there have now been um, about 1,000 Canadians who've participated in these deliberative processes. Uh, and we've mailed about 300,000 households inviting uh, citizens in uh, to these processes. And the funny thing about them is that we're doing everything that... Um, the kind of standard way of doing business suggests uh, won't work or isn't possible. You can't get people out for a one-hour evening meeting. We ask people to give us four, six, eight days of their time. Uh, but we've learned um, that you know people want to be a part of something bigger than themselves, more than just having a say. They're looking for an opportunity to serve. And it's not everybody all the time. 
But on balance, people at different points in their lives for very different circumstances will will say yes. We'll say that they this is mm-hmm. they, they want to give something back. Um, the way we describe it sometimes is the difference between tapping into the kind of survey taking <laughs> ability of people and the barn raising ability of people. And you know, people who have a good sense of the value of their time. Um, and they have a good sense of the value of any survey. <laughs> um, but that's just indicating preferences. Mm-hmm. That's not about problem solving. And when we actually share out the problems of government and policy making with people in a way that's intelligible to them, then they're much more prepared to roll up their sleeves and be, quote unquote, part of the solution. And that, I think, is a not the only role for citizens to play, but I think it's an important and um, under-recognized role. And so maybe for our listeners, you could kind of describe a bit of your process of how you guys come to this successful moment at the end, almost reverse engineer it for me. You At the end, you have a citizens reference panel that has put together recommendations after, you know, you know, six to eight days or longer uh, of right. deliberation and, and work together. So how... How does the process work? How do you go from the start to the finish? Well, you know, just for the, the benefit of your listeners, I think one of the things that we have a, a tendency to do um, as a, as a as if, if, if people who focus on public engagement can consider themselves a sector is that we just kind of confuse it with very specialized terminology. So whether it's a citizen's assembly or a citizen jury or a reference panel, mm-hmm. um, uh, or any other name, you know, there there is a kind of um, uh, common, there's some distinctions, but we can focus on what's common amongst them. Um, and, and the connection I want to make is not actually even to the citizens' assemblies and the idea of any of this being so innovative, um, because its closest parallel, in fact, is to one of the oldest democratic processes, um, frequently, you know, forgotten, uh, not well studied, um, but it's the work of coroner's juries. Hmm. So everyone is familiar with the idea of a courtroom jury, and uh, in a courtroom, it's an adversarial contest between an an accuser and an accused. Mm -hmm. Um, but in a coroner's jury, it's a non-adversarial process where counsel is there to help the jury understand and examine a range of material. And so they'll call, of course, witnesses. Uh, and there isn't a finding of guilt or innocence. Instead, coroner's juries issue reports that contain recommendations. Now, we've been doing this. And is this coroner <laughs> or coroner? I'm con- a coroner. <laughs> coroner. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so this is like a coroner's inquest where mm-hmm. there is a jury yes. uh, that is impaneled. And, you know, there, there's a long and interesting history about how coroner's juries came to be and their evolution in Britain and in Canada. But the point is that nothing that we're doing with reference panels or citizen juries uh is is all that different? Um, so, how do we get to the report and the recommendations? Well, um, you know, first you have to bring together a group of people, and you know, as we like to say, you'll never walk by a courthouse that's running a traditional jury and see a sandwich board outside that says "murder trial this afternoon, jurors wanted." Mm-hmm. That would be nuts, right? Because we know the people who would line up, right? Uh, So we have, as a society, become more sophisticated about this. Now, we compel people to serve on our criminal juries. We don't compel them to serve on our policy juries. We invite them, and we frame it as a matter of public service. So uh, we send out typically five or 10,000 letters to randomly selected households. We've done this in BC and we've done it in Vancouver and we're currently doing it in uh, Duncan, North Couch, uh, where we um, 
uh, invite people to volunteer. And typically we have a 3 to 7% response rate, depending on the topic and the time of year and how many meetings are, are um, uh, scheduled in the program. Uh, from amongst those people who volunteer, we then randomly select typically 36 people. It's done in such a way as to broadly match the demographic profile. So it's half men, it's half women, it's stratified by age. Um, it uh, will also be uh, broken out by a geographic um, area. Uh, and there may be other attributes. So if we were doing a project about housing policy, we would see that a proportionate number own versus rent. If we're doing it about transit, proportionate number drive cars versus walk versus take public transit. Mm. And we then um, randomly bundle those attributes and select from amongst the volunteers blindly uh, the people who have from amongst those who have volunteered. We think more like adult educators than facilitators because while the civic lottery process is going on, we then have to create a curriculum and we have to use great care, uh, often relying on advisory committees of very senior academics or policymakers, respected individuals with command and authority in their fields, uh, to create a program that would allow someone coming in, regardless of what prior knowledge um, or educational attainment they might have, to get the basics and build from there. And we think in terms of process knowledge, someone understanding how this process will work and what their mm -hmm. role is in it, uh, which, is a, which is significant uh, and is often overlooked. But then we have to think about the um, uh, uh, program or the subject knowledge. Uh, and so then we'll invite in um, different experts, uh, different stakeholders, Processes like this are often criticized for being, well, it's about the 36 people, but it excludes everybody else. Well, oftentimes, those stakeholder membership organizations, they need to have standing in these processes. So they can be presenters. They can organize um, shoulder meetings or, or um, parallel activities. We often have what are called public roundtable meetings in the midst of a uh, reference panel process where members of the panel then go and host uh, public meetings. So now it's citizens talking to citizens. In any event, over the course of the four or six Saturdays, uh, they move through um, a program that, broadly speaking, emphasizes kind of information and context at the beginning and then flips to being entirely deliberative by the end. And we start by talking about values and then we get more specific talking about issues. And from amongst those issues, we'll identify priorities. And having established those priorities, then we draft recommendations that we think can satisfy those priorities. And as a consensus or uh, process, um, you know, not everyone needs to agree. Uh, but um, we look for a strong and overwhelming majority of support for any of the recommendations. And the panel actually writes the report itself and continues to edit it online after the program is complete. Hmm. Any member of, an, of a panel can also write what we call a minority report, which is an important safety valve, where they know from the first day that if there was something they didn't like about me or, or the process or the government client or the recommendations, they can, they can say so and it won't be edited by anyone. So that's an important measure of accountability as well. Anyway, there are lots of other components of it, but in, in broad strokes, that's how it works. Now, there are different ways to do it. How many roundtable meetings you have? Do you do them before, during, or after the process? How do you sequence the reference panel into the midst of, a, you know, a larger policy architecture? Um, you know, what role do elected officials or senior uh, managers or you know, uh, agency boards play, um, who has standing in the conversation, what is the role of advisors. There are lots of different ways to um, design and articulate different facets and strengths of the process. And we've had the chance to try quite a range. Mm -hmm. But but fundamentally, we, we've 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 really we've been we've been pretty constant about the 
core attributes of it because they're based, I think, on some very sound principles that actually you can't deviate from. So this next clip here is from my conversation with Guy Says from Making Sense. And uh, it's, it's probably the most recent clip that's in the batch here. Um, and it's just a really interesting look at Making Sense's approach to um, combining uh, groups of folks who are really excited about, uh, you know, learning new tech and learning how to use new uh, sensors and Arduinos and all this kind of stuff with uh, groups of people who have some sort of um, issue or concern that they're worried about and they're wondering if there's a technical solution to. Um, And their work is basically kind of a facilitation exercise bridging those two communities of people to help them work together and figure out a way that they can better uh, respond to the uh, the crazy things that exist in our environment these days, like you know, pollutants and, uh, and, you know, all sorts of stuff like that, right? And better respond to it and better understand how they can communicate to government about what needs to be done about it. So this is the last one in the series of uh, clips here. And it's kind of almost like, uh, kind of like a cutting edge, I guess, if you want to think of it that way. Um, because it's, trying to merge all of the technical innovation that we see in in the kind of internet of things movement with a lot of the things that uh you know mass lbp or um patrick condon was doing uh, in the design charades um so trying to merge like technical innovation with facilitation innovation and trying to get um groups of people who normally would never consider themselves to be scientists actually uh, participating in their communities as citizen scientists. So, uh, very cool stuff. So, I hope you enjoy it. The whole theme of this is we're not dictating uh, what we do. We facilitate. Most of the time on Making Sense, we're, we're facilitating. Interesting. Um, and so, like, that, that that's really interesting to hear. Are you able to kind of give me a high-level walkthrough of, of your facilitation process that you take yeah um so um, yeah for sure Let, let's say for example a, a given any given project we um we start off with a participatory planning right so we map out the community commons so who are the people we have access to or what what are they willing to contribute you know are they willing to contribute time are they willing to contribute technological skills or resources, perhaps someone has space. Uh, we also map out um, where they are kind of on a map. So we do these things with like sticker dots on big maps and stuff. Um, and then we start to kind of unpack the issue a bit, like what is it What is it that we're looking to tackle? So like this is a participatory planning. We kind of set mm-hmm. some kind of ambitions, all this kind of stuff. Then we do um, what we call community-level indicators. So we, we set out indicators um, so that our sensor deployment is actionable. What are, we, what, are we, what are we really looking for here? Are we, for example, looking to reduce the amount of noise at night? Or are we looking to lower noise in apartments and homes? We, we set very clear things. We don't just go, oh, we want to tackle noise. We, mm-hmm. we set out a community perspective. What, do they, what, what is the change that they want to see? Again, we don't come in with a change that we want to see for our own agenda. This is them. This is like they have an interest in this. What do they want to see? And then we figure out what indicators... Get, get there, right? For example, we can say that um, street traffic uh, might be a good indicator of how much noise there's going to be, or uh, the uh, number of attendants at different bars might be something, you know. Um, and then, and then from that, we can start to figure out, okay, well, if we're looking for number of attendants, what kind of sensors do we need? We probably need some kind of cameras or something. We need to photograph people. We need someone out there with a clipboard, um, you know. So we, from this, we start to kind of put together a strategy of like, how might we capture this data that we want to capture. Mm-hmm. Um, then, then we kind of, um, well, then we do essentially a uh, technological onboarding. We kind of tool up, essentially. We, we have some sensors or we, what we don't have, we figure out how to make. We go to the Fab Lab and we do that. The, ones, the people that are interested in helping us make that, 
We teach them how to do it. The ones that aren't, they just get their sensor when it's time to deploy it. Mm-hmm. We do um, we do kind of a deployment. So while that's doing that thing, we have data literacy workshops. So we teach people what the data that they're going to be getting from the sensor is, right? Um, for example, one of the big things that we ourselves found out was that when we're creating noise pollution things, um, we measure um, um, uh, noise in our sensors in uh, dBA. I think it's dBA. Uh, second. Um, which basically... So there's two ways of measuring sound. There's dBA and um, dBC. Hmm. One of these sound um, units measuring decibels attenuates the sound. Right, so what it does, it measures kind of um, more higher frequency sounds, which means like all these loud noises that you can hear, you kind of go like, okay, so that's that's the official measuring station. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas our sensors measure, I think it's DBC. What DBC does is measure the full spectrum of sound from low to high. So for example, a good, a good example of this is when you walk into a room that nobody's there and it's quiet, and then after a while, somebody turns off the air conditioning. And then, like, the whole room goes really silent, right? Like, all this time, you'd been exposed to, like, low-frequency uh, sound, but high-pressure high sound, right? Oh. It can actually cause a lot of stress to the human ear. But Interesting. You, you, the, the, the official sensors don't measure that, mm-hmm. right? So, so, actually, a big cause of sound pollution, if you really look at it, is industrial air conditioning units. Hmm. But... Socially, what we expect is tourists making noise outside. But that might cause as much stress as the industrial um, air conditioning units right uh, right outside your window. Yeah, just that um, continual and so, background. So, exactly. And your, your brain is very good at attenuating these sounds, of like blocking them out. Mm-hmm. It kind of is good at pattern recognition. So it picks up the ones that are like irregular, like loud sounds every now and again that those that disturb you. But these constant sounds... Uh, block them out. So we, we 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 have kind of lots of workshops about this. We also have lots of workshops about visualization uh, of data. You know, like how do we get people that aren't I don't know artistic or technological to pick up a pen and really unpack the idea of sound? You know, into shapes mm-hmm. and into you know, we do things like data postcards. We do use acetate over graphs to like help them spot patterns, like things that are very kind of you know you can do in a school very easily. Um, and then also, but very important, we talk about the governance of data. Um, you know, who owns this data? What can it be used for? What can not? Like, if I'm devoting my time and my electricity and my house and my, essentially, you know, my my life putting these, making these these data sets, what are the kind of rights that I want to associate with this data? Hmm. How do I want it to be used? Because as well, like, you've got to be careful because data can become come back to haunt you, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you prove that your street is really, really noisy, that can suddenly affect your house price. Yes, right? that, can, right. that can suddenly affect a lot of things that you didn't expect it to affect. Just, I mean, who has access to this is an important question to have. We do a lot of these data data workshops, not, not so much about statistics of data, but really the inner workings of data that everyone can understand. Then we go, once we, once we get the data, we make sense of it, uh, we do. Um, we now move from awareness to action. So we do co-creation methodologies, right? So we do, uh, for example, the newspaper of the future, in which we figure out what we want to have happen in two months or two years or whatever, and then we work our way back. To, like, how might we create that? It might be, for example, a public intervention, or it might be a policy change or something. And we figure out who do we have to put in a room together, what kind of conditions have to happen. We do these kind of group things in common. A lot of the stuff that we've done, just I guess through the sheer interest of the Fab Labs and stuff, has ended up in some sort of fabrication. But then we also have fabrication workshops in mm. we, where we develop maker skills through the Fab Lab network. Uh, we get the communities of practice to teach the communities of interest, and we create, for example, one of the things that we created was a thing called the Noise Box in Barcelona, which was this uh, just a big, a big wooden box with a big button inside and some LED strips running out of it. When you press the button, it measured the current sound in real time and lit up some, an LED strip. Um, and on the ground, it was marked what the level was legally and how much above or below that level it was. But also, what are the medical implications of the sound being at oh, that level? Interesting. 
And so, and so it helped people very quickly that don't want to look at big graphs of data, see a bunch of shining lights, mm-hmm. see the fact that at, that at that level, for a long time, it might create um, kind of some ear deficiencies or it might create vertigo or it might create, you know, a lot of this kind of different things, uh, insomnia, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, how do, we, how do we broaden the awareness, just that group that took part in the pilots, the outside world? Because there's no point keeping that just within those four walls. So... How do, how do we do that? But also important is when we deploy this, how do we do it in a way that fosters a dialogue, right? So that other people want to get involved, like not necessarily want to get involved, but that they also become aware of the findings that we've done. Like when you, when you look at official centers out there in the wild, you see kind of hidden behind these big gray boxes, right? The official measuring stations, they're just these like, big square boxes or hidden away mm-hmm. up in like a, a gutter of a building. They look quite, again, they look quite Orwellian, right? They look quite surve- like surveillance yeah, yeah. meters measuring you. Uh, they, they're not looking for you to ask any questions about this. They kind of, they try to blend into the environment yeah. like kind of <laughs> measuring you. And, and that's a shame because that also then, in a sense, kind of creates this, this idea that like, oh, I shouldn't be asking questions about this stuff. Like they're clearly not wanting me to, so I'm not going to bother. Uh, and that, that, that's a shame because there's a lot of questions to be asked about this kind of stuff. And so by creating installations that actively invite dialogue and participation, you're, you're starting to create a discussion. You might not be solving anything right off the bat. You might spark something that you wouldn't have otherwise if you just deployed an anonymous sensor somewhere and then published this on a largely forgettable website somewhere, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, by, by putting this in the public domain, you actually invite um, the conversation. So our, our process of that is going from uh, scoping to uh, uh, sensing to data sense making and then to an action. Hmm. Um, and also, and also I, I feel that the action has been a very, you know, it's been a key part of all the stuff that we've done because it also offers a sense of not completion, but one way around the loop, you know? So you've done one, one loop and then you can now do another. Now, you take what you've done in the action, you take your learnings, you analyze them, you unpack the issues that you found, and you go through the process again. You, you map it out again, you figure out the data, da, 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 and you do a new action. So that's, that's kind of the, 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 the rough, making sense, process. That's, um, that's great. I mean, I think it's, I think it's just uh, it's fascinating to hear that, uh, you know, on the, on the surface, it seems like, oh, this is kind of like a... A, a technological thing, and uh, I wonder if I can engage with it. But really, what what your guys's practice is all about is about kind of facilitating adult education opportunities mm-hmm. around around these tools and how to use them, and not only just how to use them, but how to uh, how to how to take some ownership and to have some efficacy in how how they're designed and built and. Like it, it's, yeah. it's, it's more fulsome than just, um, here's a product or here's a, here's an approach or a thing. Uh, this is how you use it. will help you with any troubleshooting issues you have. It's more, you know, it's, it's much more involved and engaged. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the working together podcast, all one word. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more in-depth conversations with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers sure to inspire you and help you make an impact in your world. And don't forget to rate and review so that I can continue to bring you the social innovation goods. Finally, if you'd like to receive the weekly Working Together Review newsletter where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperatives, behavioral economic strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com. Oh,